Well, here we go this morning. Are you ready? Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. We've got a pretty hefty set of verses this morning. We'll look at 21 through 41. And I will say that our text isn't one that is rich with doctrinal application or theological insight or any of those things. However, it is filled with both corporate and personal application. Now, the last time we were together in the book of Acts, we encountered a pair of rather unusual events, one of which we would even label a biblical anomaly. Now, this was recorded for us in 11 and 12 of Acts 19, where we were told that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out of them. Now we made the case last time because Jesus had sent out the 12 disciples in the past and they did the same exact things that we're told of Paul doing here. And because Jesus went from place to place doing the same things that we see Paul is recorded as having done here, diseases leaving people, evil spirits going out of people, we made note of the fact that the unusual aspect wasn't the miracles themselves, but rather the means. Now, we noted that God has used inanimate objects in the past as a tool like Moses' staff and Aaron's rod and the jawbone of a donkey in the hands of Samson, a fleece to communicate with Gideon. So it is not unusual in the sense that we could say God can use handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul used in his work as a tent maker if he so chooses. It might not be the normal path through which God operates, but he certainly can operate in that manner if he so desires. Now, the other unusual event in Acts chapter 19 was that of the seven sons of a Jewish chief priest named Siva. They had decided to employ the name of Jesus, whom Paul preached, to expand their own ministry and therefore line their own pockets. And they were met with a very humiliating defeat in the face of their efforts. We're told in 1915 to 16, and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That isn't a very good marketing strategy for building your exorcism ministry. Now, one other curious thing about our verses last time was the reaction to the news concerning this event that happened with the seven sons of Siva. We're told it became known throughout all of Ephesus and caused many who practiced magic to burn their books. Now, we noted that many of these books contained amulets and charms used in the incantations and spells that the books recorded. And it seems as though this had even made its way into the church because we were told that those who believed came confessing and telling of their deeds. Then we came to verse 20, which will launch us into our time this morning, where Luke recorded these words in 1920. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and what? 
and prevail. Now, the word prevail means force. It can be translated as impact, telling us that the impact of the gospel in this town was significant and growing in Ephesus. And because of this, what we'll read of this morning is a backlash that happens in light of the impact of the gospel. Now, our topic is similar to our last visit to Acts in that we focused on the authority of the name of the Lord as we titled our time, The Name of the Lord Is. And we're going to examine in detail this morning the post-experience of the preaching of the gospel, the delivering of those who were practicing magic and their confession of sin, which is going to allow us to identify how the word of the Lord is prevailing, not just in our own lives, but through the church as a whole. Now, our title is quite simple this morning, and again, it's going to be replete with personal and corporate application, and our title is simply Impact Living. Do you want to make an impact for God's kingdom? This morning, we're going to look at Impact Living. Now, we're going to examine the events in front of us, obviously historically, but we'll pair that with application personally. And in doing so, we can remind ourselves that the gospel is today what it was in Paul's day and every age in between. The gospel is unchanging and therefore it is still powerful both personally and corporately. Now, in Ephesians 5, 15 to 16, Paul gave this word of instruction. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Now, we all recognize walk is used metaphorically as living out your life. And Paul says we need to walk circumspectly. And that word means accurately. And accurately would be in accordance with God's word and not foolishly, which would be living in step with the world. Now, in evil times, we need to make our time Count. We need to redeem our time, which is the very definition of impact living. So let's see what happens around us corporately and in and through us individually when the word of the Lord is growing mightily and impacting those around us. We'll start with 21 to 27 of Acts 19. So I'd ask that you stand and read them with me, please. Acts 19, 21 through 27. Pardon me while I clean this thumbprint off the lens of my glasses. Acts 19, 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. 
So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And Father, again, we are so thankful for this opportunity to examine this event, Lord, that uh, is dramatic in nature. But may it remind us, Lord, that there's going to be a commotion when we seek to live an impactful way in contrary and in contradiction to the ways of the world. And Lord, raise our understanding this morning and give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now we kind of spilled over into verse 28. We'll pick that up again in our middle section. But we're told here, first of all, that Paul purposed in the spirit. And the word means to utterly prostrate or to bow. In other words, Paul was stating that he is going to bow to the will of God, the purposes of the Holy Spirit and his direction. It can also mean to advise or conceive. And thus Paul is saying that I feel like the spirit is leading me to stay here and then set his sights on Jerusalem and eventually wind up in Rome. Now, we know these things happen, but we also know they didn't happen in the expected manner, much as we are, as a church, going through an unexpected thing at this point in time. So our lessons today are very timely indeed. But as he awaited God's timing, he redeemed his time in Asia. And that's what we're going to do as we await God's leading. We're going to keep ministering. We're going to keep telling people about Jesus. We're going to keep being the church and functioning according to what God has called us to do. Now, he was awaiting God's timing in the plans the Spirit had led him in and to. And he redeemed his time in Asia, specifically the city of Ephesus, while he sent Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia. Now, not long after the burning of the books of incantations and spells and believers confessing and repenting of their involvement of these worldly and carnal things, we're told a great commotion arose about the way that was the first century label for the Christian church. And it was spearheaded by a man named Demetrius who made his living off of exploiting the Ephesians' love of idolatry, particularly that of a goddess named Artemis, or in our translation, Diana. He stirred up the other craftsmen who also prospered from idolatry, and he said, and I'm paraphrasing, this thing is getting out of hand. It's spreading like wildfire, not only through Ephesus, but through the balance of Asia Minor. And this guy, Paul, is saying you can't make a god out of your own hands. He's damaging our reputation. He's hurting our industry. And most of all, Diana, who is recognized and worshipped all over the world, is being disparaged by Paul. Now, in Ephesians 5, 8 through 11, we're reminded, for you were once darkness But now you are light in the Lord. Walk or live your life as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Now read this out loud with me, please. 
and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, there are multiple movements happening within the church today, and not all are good, though many are. And one of the things that is prophetic in nature is what's called ecumenism, or ecumenicalism, if you will. And it is manifesting itself in two movements called the interfaith or the common ground movements. And what their goal is, is to celebrate the commonalities between religions instead of dividing over our differences. Now, this sounds good on the surface, kind of the can't we all get along type of mentality. However, the problem is this. It denies the exclusivity, I'll figure out how to say that by second service, of the Christian message, which is a catastrophic failure on the part of the church. It eliminates impact living altogether, elevates things that are the equivalents of worshiping Artemis by giving them equal status to the Christian faith. Now, it may be popular, But it is very unbiblical. And this egalitarian thinking that dominates the world, just like the idolatry and the practices of incantations and the use of amulets made its way into the church at Ephesus, so too this egalitarian thinking is making its way into the church today. And egalitarianism, again, on the surface, sounds good. Its definition is basically the opening of our own declaration of independence that all people have equal rights. That is good, right? All people have equal rights. And with that, I think we would all readily agree. However, egalitarianism takes it a step further. And postmodern thinking is that no person has a right to have more than any other person, no matter their achievements in life, their pursuits in life, their work ethic in life, everybody ought to have the same thing, which obviously is manifesting itself in socialism or communism veiled as socialism today. Now, in the religious arena, this means that no religion has the right to claim Uh, supremacy or exclusivity above other belief systems. In other words, today's thinking by those in these uh, interfaith movements and common ground movements is that all belief systems must be true for us to be loving and kind. Now, Jesus had a different idea where he said on the eve of his crucifixion, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one, say no one, no one comes to the Father except, how? Is that not an exclusive claim? So the head of the church said, there's one way to heaven, and it's through me. Do you believe that's true? Absolutely it's true. It eliminates egalitarianism as a valid school of thought, and the church should have no part in it. We should have no part in promoting other religious systems. We should have no part in partnering with other religious systems. Listen, there's one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ, the Holy One of Israel, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, sadly, those who promote interfaith dialogue today, if they were present in the scene before us, they would have sided with Demetrius. 
You're harming this guy's business. You're harming the profits of these in this industry. And you're doing damage to their homes. And therefore, uh, you have no right to do that. But listen, here's a very simplistic point we need to recognize on both the corporate and the personal level. And it's just this. It's kind of outside the box of our normal uh, packaging of our points of application. But here it is nonetheless. Listen this morning. True revival. Say true revival. True revival will have a financial impact on the sin industry. True revival will have a financial impact on the sin industry. We have one who indeed is a relatively recent example, a man named Billy Sunday, who personally pushed through prohibition in our country. He hated alcohol. He hated what it did to people. So he was institutional in pushing forward the 18th Amendment. And for a season, our country was a dry country and all sorts of illegal activities popped up from that. But he took a hard stand against alcohol. He took a hard stand against gambling as well. And he said this concerning the response to culture around him. He said, and I quote, I've stood for more sneers and scoffs and insults and had my life threatened from one end of the land to the other by this godforsaken gang of thugs and cutthroats because I have come out uncompromisingly against them. Now, should we have an experience like that in life? Well, according to Jesus in Matthew five eleven to 16, he said, blessed are you when they what? Revile and persecute you. That's what was happening to Billy Sunday for the stand he took. And say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward where? In heaven. And then the Lord says this. This is the pattern of those who want to live for God and walk according to his word. When he says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he adds this by way of illustration and caution. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor or its preserving influence, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Then he re-illustrates his point by saying, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to who? All who are in your house. Then he adds this in verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Now, this is what Jesus said right after he opened the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, which tells us that living as salt and light is going to be counter to how society lives and operates and the opposite of the things that the world values. And contrary to what promoters of the social gospel are teaching and believing today, listen, the church is not on earth to promote equality and resolve the world's socioeconomic needs. 
The church is not on earth to promote equality and resolve the world's socioeconomic needs. The needs the church is on earth to save souls and rescue those who are drawn towards death. And the fact is, when the church either begins to or returns to its calling under God, the sin industry is going to feel a financial impact of a true revival. Now listen, this is true on the corporate level, but the personal level as well. And therefore, we should ask ourselves some questions. Is our home contributing to the sin industry? Is our home financing the porn industry? Is our home underwriting the booze industry? Is our home supporting the spread of heresy because somebody writes and people like to read books that contain things that people like to think are true, but are actually anti-biblical? And listen, when the word of the Lord grows mightily and prevails, it has an impact that is going to cause commotions to arise about the way. And in Ephesians 4, 17 to 24, you guys still here? Paul says, this I say, therefore, in testifying the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Now, remember, in the Old Testament, a Gentile was a non-Jew. In the New Testament, a Gentile is a non-believer. In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness and greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you may put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, that's not your husband, ladies, it's your old nature, put off the old nature which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness, and what's the next word? And holiness. Listen, this kind of church and this kind of Christian that we just read described to us is going to cause a commotion about the way that they follow. And when true revival hits a church like it did in Ephesus, and many other cities and individuals down through the ages, the sin industry is going to feel a financial impact. Now, think about it. If just the Christians would stop financing inappropriate movies and TV shows, Hollywood would feel such a financial impact that they would stop making them because, after all, they are all about money. Somebody say, Amen. Now, Let's look at 28 through 34. We'll talk more about this uh, as we move forward. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with what? Confusion. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul travel, travels, uh, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. 
Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now, one thing we need to take note of right away is that all that was being said against Paul and his companions were the outcropping of revival, not protests and march against and around the temple of Diana. Now listen, there is a place for standing against and marching against the evils of the day like abortion. Amen. We are to take a stand. We are to uh, participate, I believe, in pro-life marches and things of that nature. But listen, as I mentioned a moment ago, and I'm sure maybe some were thinking, listen, the Bible doesn't prohibit drinking, and that's true. The prohibition is against drunkenness, and that's true as well. Well, let me say this. The Bible doesn't forbid drinking as a whole, but there is nothing in our society that contributes more to domestic violence, divorce, wrongful death, and the greatest cost in the healthcare industry to the tune of billions of dollars a year is alcohol. Now, should we be supporting that industry? Not in my mind and not in my house, I will say that for sure. And again, I'm all for organized marches and other issues relevant to being salt and light. But here's the point of what I'm saying. Listen close. Revival will do what no march or protest can ever do. Revival will do what no march or protest can ever do. Listen, marches and protests raise awareness, which is good. Revival brings transformation of lives, which is better. Which impacts the sin industry's ability to further their cause? Obviously, revival. So which is the better impact? Revival or marches and protests? Revival. Now, many would say today, what's the big deal? It's the worship of a non-existent God. It's a statue. It means nothing. If people want to believe in Artemis or Diana, what's the problem? If it has a positive impact on their life, what's the harm? Or even what business is that of yours if somebody wants to follow a religion other than Christianity? This is pragmatism, and it is rampant in our day. Others would say, listen... Your, your actions are taking a financial impact, uh, are making a financial impact on people's livelihoods, and the church should be supportive of this people's belief systems and not infringe upon someone's right to believe in Diana or practice their worship of her. And we can make a multitude of applications regarding various religions and religious practices in our day. But let me go back to Jesus' exclusive claim. Can you get to heaven through any other belief system? So should we be accommodating to them? 
Well, of course not. We can certainly love our enemies and do good to those who hate us and even those who are amongst other religious systems who aren't or don't perform in their lives like enemies, but rather are friendly and kind people. We can return like for like and do good and love and care for them as we should, but we do not promote what it is they believe because it cannot get anyone into heaven. Somebody say... Amen. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 to 21, what am I saying there? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things what the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to who? Demons. That's who's behind every single religion in the world apart from Judaism and Christianity. All of these things are inspired by demons and sacrifices to them are sacrifices to demons and not to God. And then Paul says, and I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. And then he goes on to say, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. And this religious egalitarianism, which is sweeping especially through many of our young people today, is dangerous. And not only is it dangerous, it is demonic. All things are not equal. There's one way to get to heaven, and it's only and exclusively through Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. Somebody say, Amen. Now, the whole city was filled with confusion. They rushed into this 25,000 seat amphitheater, which I have stood in and been amazed by in the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus is one of the most magnificent archaeological finds in the modern world. And it indeed is an impressive, and I imagine these men standing down on where the stage now sits, looking up at 25,000 angry Ephesians, yelling at them and Alexander the Jew for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What an intimidating scene. Alexander comes forward to try and distance the Jews from this movement. But as soon as the mob found out he was a Jew, they shouted him down with their cry of great is Diana. And listen, in the midst of all the commotion, Saul was, Paul rather, was seeking to enter the theater and address the crowd. But some of the Ephesian officials, as well as his disciples, pleaded that he not, him being the very cause of this commotion, enter in to the theater. Now, listen, here's our next point of application. Something to consider this morning, especially in the time that we live in. We will never impact the world for good by bowing to their demands. We will never impact the world for good. You might say we will never impact the world for God by bowing to their demands. Listen, we're not supposed to be what the world wants us to be. We're supposed to be what God wants us to be. We're supposed to be what Jesus died to make us, a new creation in whose life all things have passed away and all things have become new. And what God wants us to be is going to rub people the wrong way. It is going to cause us to be viewed negatively at times and it will even stir up commotions against us. 
But let's not forget what had already happened in Ephesus because of manifested evil. A confession of sin and repentance happened within those who believed in that city because of the event with the seven sons of Siva and their humiliation. Now in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5, as an example, we're told as Paul wrote to this very carnal city, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. In other words, there's something going on in the church that doesn't even happen in the world. And then he cites what it is. A man has his father's wife, or there's a man in the church sleeping with a stepmom. And then Paul says this, and you're puffed up. In other words, you think you're walking in grace by not saying anything about this. And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already what? Judged. That wasn't very loud. I've already what? Judged. As though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, we need to note that after reading such strong statements from Paul, that he told the same church in the next letter, after the man repented, that they were to receive him as a brother, lest he become overwhelmed by too much sorrow. You can read that in 2 Corinthians 2, 7. Now, people today, many even in the church, I use that term loosely, are saying we need to welcome biblically defined sexual immorality into the church. And they base their decisions solely on cultural pressures and not on biblical doctrine or mandates. And listen, God is in the business of turning people from darkness to his marvelous light. And if we lose our savor or flavor as the new translations render it, as salt and light, Jesus said, you're going to be good for nothing. As a matter of fact, you're going to get run over by the world. Now, Paul would have likely met a far worse fate than Alexander, who simply wanted to defend himself and the Jews by disassociating themselves from all this commotion. Now, it is bizarre to say the least that the church and many evangelical Christians are the focus of so many attacks today by political leaders, and yet it is the church who has built many of our hospitals throughout the history of our nation. It is the church who established our first major universities in this nation, many of them anti-God Ivy League schools today. Seminaries that bear the names like Princeton are now anti-God in many of their practices and positions. But listen, it is the church that is the first to respond to literally 
every natural disaster in our day. It is the church that is already in the Bahamas operating, helping people through the most catastrophic experience they have ever had in their lives. It is the church who has a positive influence on this country like no other special interest group, if I can use that label, to associate us. Now, listen. Evangelical Christians don't kill homosexuals. They love homosexuals. Christians don't blow up abortion clinics. They pray for those who work there and pray for those who enter there and do whatever they can to stop a woman from making a mistake she will later regret and offer her the forgiveness and love of God. Christians don't attack Buddhists. Christians don't attack Muslims. Christians don't attack Hindus. And yet Buddhists, Muslims, and Hindus are killing Christians right now all over the world. But it's the Christians who are blamed for the upheaval that is happening in our world today. And it's not because of what we do. It is because of what we believe. It's sounding very familiar in light of our text this morning. And yet Paul says in 831 to 37 of Romans, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Somebody say hallelujah, amen, or something. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, we are for your sake killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nowhere. Does the Bible even come remotely close to implying that the church is to bow to the world's demands in order to get along? We are clearly told that impact living is not going to be well received by a world that loves darkness and hates the light. Yet, even in the midst of all that Paul described to the Roman Christians, we are to do good to those who hate us and pray for those who spitefully use us. We are not doing the world any favors by bowing to their pressures and demands, no matter how many or how long they shout at us that we are the problem and we're the enemies of what they believe. We hold our ground as the body of Christ, no matter what's going on in the world around us. Amen? Now, Let's finish off with 35 to 41. And when the city clerk had accepted the crowd, I'm sorry, quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro or attorneys. 
Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for the for this disorderly gathering. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, Ephesus enjoyed a bit of autonomy in the Roman Empire in that they were to a degree self-ruled and governed. And under Roman rule or law, things such as this commotion or uprising would put them at risk if word got back to Rome. And the city clerk, the man responsible for keeping the peace, so to speak, steps forward, quiets the confused mob with some logic, warns them that Rome frowns on such uproars, and they are in uh, on the verge of being called into question because of their disorderly conduct. He points the complainants to the court system, says to Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen, listen, these people haven't robbed the temple. They haven't insulted Diana. You need to quiet this uproar. And if you have charges against them, use the court system in order to do so. And he dismissed the 25,000 or so people with a wave of his hand. Now, it's interesting that Demetrius, or I'm sorry, the city clerk, opens his argument with the type of confidence that you and I ought to have. He says, who doesn't know about the temple of Diana here? I mean, come on. Everybody knows we're the guardian of the temple of the great goddess Diana. What do we have to be afraid of? What do we need to be concerned about? If you have some type of complaint against these guys, take them to court, use the system to sue for damages or whatever it is you want to do. And then he says, you know, everybody knows about the image of Diana that fell down from the sky from Zeus. So we have nothing to be concerned about. He has kind of a Davidic attitude, if you will, though he is expressing it from the other side of the other team. Now remember David's attitude, one of my favorite passages in 1 Samuel 17, 26, when he was concerned about or uh, was made aware of, I should say, the issue of the Philistine champion. He says, as David spoke to the men who stood by him, what should be done for this man, for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And then David says this, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, this wasn't strictly David's mentality. It was the same thought processes of Jeremiah, where he said in 10, 7 to 10, Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, for you are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there's none like you. But they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Silver is beaten into plates. It's brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. The work of the craftsmen in the hands of the metalsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. They are the work of skillful men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Is this still true today? Yes. Of course it is. The Lord is still the true God. He is the living God. He is the everlasting King. And the same question is posed by the earth dwellers during the tribulation. The day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? 
Listen, the city clerk has more confidence in an idol that was made with human hands and the mythological story surrounding it than many do today in the infallible and inspired word of God. And listen this morning, here's our concluding point. The greatest attractor from impact living is compromise. The greatest attractor from impact living is compromise. Now listen, this is not the first time Paul had a financial impact on the sin industry. Back in chapter 16, 16 to 24, we have the record of an event as it happened when they went to prayer. A certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much what? Profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us, Luke giving a firsthand account, obviously, cried out saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. They brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them. The magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid next to words, many stripes on them. They threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely, meaning buying their feet and arms and stocks. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Do you remember what happened that same night in this jail in Philippi? Paul and Silas were up all night talking about how they had been forsaken. No. What were they doing at midnight? They were singing hymns. And while they're singing hymns and the other prisoners were hearing them, an earthquake shook the prison right down to its foundations and all the prisoners' chains fell off. The jailer, after seeing this, was about to take his own life. Paul stopped him. He got saved. He got baptized. And so did his whole household. Now listen, God intervened. And he is a God who intervenes. Amen? And though the intervention method is different in our text, the source of the intervention is the same. It was the Lord. Now, this is why compromise is not only wrong, it's unnecessary. We don't need to compromise to win the world. We just need to preach Christ and him crucified. It's going to cause a commotion. Some people aren't going to like it. It may cause persecution. It will cause tribulation. But some people are going to be saved when we are faithful to the word of God. Think about Saul's own story and his conversion on the road to Damascus. He was on his way to imprison and have killed Christians who were there. Yet it didn't happen. But something did happen to Saul. He had an encounter that changed his life. And he began impact living as a man who is on fire for God. And listen, impact living is always going to cause a commotion. There's always going to be an uproar for having stood for and on the word of God. 
And you know what? This is going to be true even during the tribulation, which I highly recommend that you avoid altogether. The church is going to be gone. But the devil and his compadres, so to speak, are going to be killing those believers who have the testimony of Christ during that time. And their belief is going to cause a commotion in the world. Even the practices of two witnesses during the tribulation is going to cause the whole world to celebrate and exchange gifts at their death. Listen, what we believe causing a commotion and uproar around us has always been true. And it's always going to be true. And it's true today. And that's why Jesus said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And the greatest attractor to impact living is compromise, either morally or spiritually. So let's have nothing to do with it. Jesus didn't say, reach a compromise with the world so that everybody is happy because there is no such compromise. Everybody is never going to be happy. Yet we can have joy, the joy of the Lord, even being our strength. So let's stay biblical in these last days. Let's not bow to culture in these last days. Let's remember our God is a God who intervenes, even as he allows things that are hard on the Christian, difficult for us to understand. The point of the church, the purpose of the church is that people will be saved. We don't compromise our message. We don't compromise our morals. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. And Father, we are grateful again for our time in your matchless word this morning. We pray, Lord, that these things that we have examined through this commotion and uproar that arose over the way would find a home in our hearts and find a practice daily in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you cannot be overcome. You will not be dethroned. There is no equal to you that never has been, there never will be, for you are the one true and living God. And help us, Lord, even as we see this city clerk have such confidence in a myth that he quiets an angry mob of some 25,000 people. May we have such confidence in one who actually exists and has proven his power, might, omniscience, and omnipresence throughout the course of history. So, Lord, help us to leave this place today with the boldness of David, the confidence of Paul, and all the other things that we enjoy because of the presence of your Spirit in our lives. Help us to do all to stand in an age where the world is yelling for us to stand down. Help us in these things, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. And all the Sunday morning warriors said... Amen.